leader of the conference. I have immense pleasure in welcoming Professor Robert Coles, winner of the Lord Abadir Literary Prize 2021 for the monumental book called This Sporting Life. And on behalf of the BSSH and my co-panelists on the judges panel last year, Imogen Gibbon and uh, Richard Body, I thank Dr. Coles for the great opportunity for reading this book, which was quite an educative experience for us all. As Richard Coles said yesterday, just the bibliography could be printed as a book on its own. The dazzling array of archives and the different sorts of sources that Professor Coles has used was quite extraordinary which added to the depth of, uh, depth of understanding the role of sport in the making of British identity. So over to you, Professor Coates. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, well, first thing is um, to say is how glad and how nice it is to be here. I'm not a great lover of conferences, but I've really enjoyed this one. So supportive, so collegial, so friendly. You can sit where you like and you get a smile. And they even thank you before you give the paper. <laughs> <laughs> Having said that, um, we do live in a difficult profession. Um, we are meant to write books, but we're not exactly encouraged by our rivals anyway to do that. Nor are we particularly mentored by our friends. You do years of work for a book and then you're pleased with half a dozen reviews, really pleased. And then you have to start it all over again. It's a very difficult um, business. Uh, and hence, um, my pleasure in accepting uh, the Aberdeer Prize. Uh, I am aware, of course, that prizes only represent what one committee thinks at one particular moment. And there are an awful lot of strong contenders uh, in for this prize. But nevertheless, uh, I was really pleased to win it. I don't usually win prizes. The last prize I won was for Leicester Academicals in the Leicester Sunday League, when we won the uh, Challenge Cup. That was in 1990. I spent this morning uh, looking for my medal, but couldn't find it. So. <laughs> I say Leicester Academicals. We called ourselves the Knackered Animals. <laughs> So what about the book? And the first thing I just want to say about it is uh, if you want to buy a copy at 30% discount, or you may have given me a code. So you go online, and if you put in the code AAFLYG6, AAFLYG6, you get it for £17.50, not 25 And it looks like that. Is that upper or lower case? Sorry. Uh, it's upper case. Hayden's question, but it might be important. <laughs> yeah, quite. Yeah, yeah. And so what about the book? Um, well, for those who haven't read it, or even those who don't really fancy reading it, um, I'm going to give you a taste anyway. So this is from chapter three, which is called um, Bottom. Um, and it takes its name from... Um, a, a very old prize-fighting term, bottom, it really means courage, indomitable courage. 
Dowling, the great 19th century boxing referee, said it was anyone with bottom was the safest man to bet in the universe. Um, so what this chapter tries to do is show how boxing stood for a certain kind of bravery, a certain kind of courage, a certain kind of physical strength in the national identity. Here is a section from it, from the book, page 83. Boxers' qualities were analogous to regiments of the line. Soldiers fought shoulder to shoulder in dense formations. At the critical point where the line had to resist being broke or having its flank turned, the man is everything. In the end, the line moved forward no matter what. Wellington nurtured a view of himself and his soldiers as morbid and taciturn in the face of an enemy, French enemy, that was impulsive and excitable. In particular, the British Army was known for its square, a formation that wheeled into shape when its flank had been turned. Each side of the square comprised two tiers of soldiers, one standing, one kneeling, intended to repulse cavalry attacks by giving constant fire instead of constant numerous loading procedures. In point of fact, the square was a rich crimson target for all the shot and shell the enemy could pour into it. Nevertheless, commentators praised Wellington's lines and squares for their steady and undemonstrative ability to take punishment and give it. Boxiana, the great journal of Regency boxing, called all this bottom or gluttony. Military historians called it stubborn at Tileva, measured at Alveira, unwavering at Victoria, and steady at Waterloo. Wellington, who had a way with words, called it fair bludgeon work. Now, if you want a bit of fair bludgeon work, here's the American John Heenan fighting the Englishman Tom Sears in a field 7.30 in the morning in Hampshire in 1860. By now, having taken a lot of jabs, one side of Heenan's face had swollen blue, while Sayer's face was beginning to look like a battered copper tea kettle, according to Bell's life. Sayer's, the smaller man, would hit and take a look. Heenan would grab and make a throw, neither decisively. At 8.30 a.m., the local constabulary turned up, but stayed on the edge of the crowd as the odds, like the fighting itself, stuck on evens. An hour later, Sayers was breathing heavily, freely spitting blood, right arm out of it, probably broken, against his chest, left hand constantly in Heenan's eyes, but knuckles too puffy for hard punching. Heenan was a disgusting sight, according to the Sydney Morning Herald, but was revealing himself 
as a man too strong to lose and not skilled enough to win. And he was having difficulty seeing. This is Wellington's fair bludgeon work, the sort of thing regiments of the line were expected to emulate. And each chapter of the book moves like that. It starts with a specific event, sporting event, at a particular time with particular players. And then, in true military fashion, it debouches out to wider meanings and wider development. I start this, I start this chapter with this prize fight in as much detail as the sources would summon. I can always remember when I first started reading sports history, Tony Mason telling me in the book that it cost sixpence to get into a football match. And before that, I'd read a lot of sociology of sport and football, having a job at Leicester University, but no one ever told me it was sixpence to get in around 1900. And from that sixpence, I could work out just what football meant to a kid earning 10 bob a week. So I went for the detail. The size of the American's chest, for instance, was 42 inches. Or who was who in Tom Sayers' The Englishman's Corner? I can tell you who was who from the New York Times. He had his two seconds sitting there like wicked keepers. Gideon, the manager, Fuller, the ped, meaning runner, who was actually Sayers' coach, Cunningham, his pal, John Morrissey, probably the American fighter and champion of the time, who'd already beaten Heenan in a dockside fight two years before, a three-foot-six-tall fighter called Jimmy Holden, and the Birdman in a cape with wings doing the occasional halloo, halloo. These were the men in Sayers' corner. And then from this kind of detail, I tried to spread out into the wider expression of national identity. Then, of course, I did, if just before this plan, I came across Clifford Geertz's wonderful interpretation of cultures and his wonderful account of the Balinese cockfight, where he begins with a cockfight and then goes on to tell you that actually it's not about cockfighting at all. It's about the status and reputation of the owners of the cops. Robert Cramp in the Sunday Times recently stole Geertz's thesis, trying to explain, as he does every week, what it's like to be an alpha male uh, doing the domestic chores. He has 10 fish fingers to distribute amongst the family, but he has to give himself more than the others because he's dad. As he explains, this wasn't about fish fingers or eating at all. It was about his status and reputation. And this is Geertz's point about sport. It's very rarely only about the action. It's also particularly about the meaning. However, if all this sounds like there was a plan to this book, I have to tell you now, there was no plan. <laughs> As Mike Tyson put it, uh, quoting Clausewitz, yeah, yeah, everyone has a plan until they're punched in the mouth. 
<laughs> well, I had a plan until Lever Hume actually gave me the money, and then I found I didn't really have a plan at all. There I was uh, at Leicester University then, uh, with a Lever Hume ticking away, reading other people's histories and theories, um, but not getting any sense of my own. My background at this point was in labor history and social history. But strangely, the giants of that kind of history, which dominated English historiography in the 1960s and 70s, the giants were not interested in sport. Marxism and neo-Marxism, as Ram mentioned this morning, preferred works of struggle and pain and work. And they could only look upon sport and any other kind of activity as a diversion or a deviation or a false consciousness. I remember Gwynne Williams at York University in the early 70s telling us young postgrads about this strange young lecturer they just appointed called Jim Walvin who was going around with a notebook asking people what they thought about football and its history. Gwynne, who was the master of proletarian society, thought this was odd and strange. I remember E.P. Thompson telling us in a lecture that he couldn't make any sense of parish sport or parish festival other than that it was a kind of bacchanalia. E.G. Hobsbawm could say nothing about sport and national identity other than it was 11 chaps in England shirts. Nor did, he, nor did sport figure in my own work with Philip Dodd, Englishness in 1986. We just looked at it and straight through it. Collie's, Linda Colley's wonderful work, Britons, in 1992, has no, almost no sport in it, certainly none explicitly. Just last March, the Literary Review, Martin Johns and the Literary Review, reviewed a big book on Welsh identity, 1962 to 97, with only a passing mention of sport. I ask you, Welsh national identity, 62 to 97, with only a passing mention of sport. No Gareth, no JJ, no JPR, no Barry John, even Gwynne had a ticket to Cardiff Arms Park. Even the folk songs of the 60s and 70s had to be miserable, or at least miserableist. You couldn't just be happy. You couldn't imagine a working class that was ever happy, or fulfilled, or excited. My first book, The Collier's Rant, 1977, was my first attempt, really, to break away from this straitjacket of Stalinist uh, Marxism. The Collier's Rant is about folk song, and it's about folk song as an act of positive identity and pleasure in being in the world. On the right, of course, they took no interest at that time in social history or labor history. Uh, and there wasn't much sport history either. Uh, they might, there were a few cricket histories, very institutional, um, a few equestrian histories, very institutional, um, but all within that framework. Mainstream history, apart from the Marxists, in the 70s and 80s was comfortable and institutional. 
I can remember my friend Philip Dodd when we were trying to sell a book to a publisher on the subject of Englishness. I remember him on the phone. He had the nerve to go on the phone trying to explain to a publisher what we were trying to do. And the first question is, what, English, what, what, what is Englishness? What do you mean? Well, Philip then tried to explain what Englishness might mean. And then, well, what are you going to do with it? And Philip said, well, we're going to deconstruct it. And I remember the publisher saying, what do you want to do that for? <laughs> <laughs> Way out. On the right, the only person who talked sensibly about sport was Michael Oakeshott, and he was a philosopher who likened political theory to sailing a yacht. Nothing to do with morals or good or bad, it was just keep the yacht afloat. So anyway, here I was, I spent the first three months of my Leverhulme stuck fast in the secondaries and reading hard um, the newspapers of the 1860s. Um, with the secondary histories, I couldn't see a way in. It had been, seemed to have been done. It was, it was beginning to emerge that there were histories of football and cricket of high standard. Holt, Dick Holt, of course, had rolled the turf, laid the boundaries, told us how to do sports history in our own country. The sociologists at Leicester fastened on social control models, delinquency models, developmental models, Elias models. None of them particularly appealed to me, or if they had done, I wouldn't have seen a way of doing better. So the secondaries seemed to be either a locked door or they didn't appeal. I knew sport wasn't always about social control. I knew that. Like we all know it, because we've all done it. As for the reading hard, I was going through Tyneside newspapers for the 1860s. I was completely lost in this confusion of results, and players, and points, and rules. Key sports were rowing, bowling, ped, pedestrianism, shooting, angling, fighting, swimming, Various kinds of horse racing, including, of course, the Palladian races. Various versions of football, cricket. Various forms, various ways of putting a challenge out, usually a little ad in the newspaper. I, Martin Polly, challenge you, Robert Cole, <laughs> to 100 yards at Ashington Colliery on Sunday morning. Bring your money. <laughs> I think you yeah. So there was all the detail, you see, but none of the plan. These were only names and models. They were all called sport, in my mind anyway, but they were just names to me. And of course, the other thing was, I wasn't yet here. I hadn't come to this fantastic center for sports history. Um, I had friends here, but it, wasn't, it was only really in 2012, when I was appointed here on a post, that I got in the swim. And every day was a conversation about sport. Every day was a little seminar. And Martin was kind enough to give me the job with James of doing the research seminar. So I had this wonderful opportunity to just ask people, whoever I wanted really, to come and give us sports research seminars. And I learned so much there, many of them. I think there must be about 40 seminars noted in this book. Why do academics never note seminars? such a powerful part 
of our community. Anyway, I wasn't here then. I was still struggling and stuck and not knowing what to do. And that lever here, like a taxi fare, was just ticking away. Then, on a whim, I took my grant and went to Carlisle, um, the record office there. My wife, as usual, knew best what was for me. She said, why don't you just go somewhere and start? And I knew from um, Stephen Constantine, a friend of mine at Lancaster, that they had good sporting records. Or at least they had estate records <coughs> that had a lot of sport in them. And his son was working there then, Matthew. And I knew from Melvin Bragg's novels that there was a kind of field sport in the Northwest that wasn't like field sport in the Southeast. I knew it was plebeian and rough. Hunting, coursing, fell running, and of course, poaching. So off I went to Carlisle. I stayed in Caldebec, in the pub where Do You Ken John Peel was written in 1828. I presume you, you know this song. Yeah. And um, actually, it was written in 1828, so they claimed, but it, wasn't, it didn't really become famous until John Peel had died. But anyway, I was in the right place, and then as soon as I went into the record office and started opening these estate papers, I knew there was something going on here. That is a form of field sport, a form of hunting, that was different from Leicestershire. I knew also that George Orwell had got it wrong. He called field sports an aristocratic fetish. Well, he didn't get many things wrong, but he certainly got that one wrong. Field sports in the Northwest were plebeian, um, impoverished, um, but about the same things as fox hunting was in Leicestershire. It was about belonging. It was about excitement. For the poacher, it was about making the rich disgorge, give up that which they already had. But both sports were about land and access to land. Hunting in Leicestershire represented the governing class. Hunting, otherwise known as poaching, in, North, in the Pennines represented the criminal class. And they were at war with each other because both challenged the meaning of land lordism. Every week almost, the provincial press has yet another headline in the 19th century, a fray. A fray in Northam, a fray in Suffolk, a fray in Sussex. What they meant by that was there was a constant guerrilla warfare in the 19th century countryside between those who had land and those who challenged it. And then I remembered a young woman called Christine Hiskey. She was young in 1974, as I was, and she was a she worked at Durham County Record Office. And she told me about this bundle of papers. In those days, they used to be in bundles with a pink ribbon. So exciting to open them. She told me about this bundle of papers about poaching wars in Weirden in Durham. And she said, you've got to, you've got to get into this because there are gunfights. This is OK corral stuff. But I didn't do anything about it at the time because I was doing coal miners, and these were lead miners. 
that's how ridiculous you can be when you're, when you're 22. But I, I remembered it. So I dashed off to Durham, got Christine's roll-up, opened it and found the most wonderful five years of poaching wars in Weardale and Teesdale and Tyndale. The Siddles, two brothers, and the Fawcett's, two brothers. The Fawcett's were picked up in 1816 and transported to Van Diemen's Land, or Tasmania. I've read, I chased the court records down at the public record office and found that something really fishy was going on. In, in other words, they hadn't been subjected to a trial like they were supposed to be. They just appeared before the magistrates and the sentence was written at the bottom. They were put on the ship Larkins and they appeared in Tasmania uh, nine months later. The Fawcett's, two brothers in St. John's Chapel, Weirdale, they were more interesting because they kept avoiding the gamekeepers. Twice the gamekeepers tried to take them, twice their mates, their gang, if you like, resisted, and they went free. So I had the transportation registers, I had the assize papers, and I had letters from magistrates, Lord Lieutenants, and in some cases, Home Secretaries, trying to run down these innocent young men who only wanted to sport in the same way, if not always for the same reasons, that their superiors did. And then, of course, I also had a diary at Leicestershire Record Office belonging to Minna Burnaby. And Minna was the wife of the master of foxhounds of the corn, the most prestigious, the most famous meat in the country. And this diary was, was a really great piece. It's not great literature, but it's great about sport. Why? Because Minna, small, sharp, American, quite rich, loved riding. And she, she recorded every ride Every is Mike here, every horse in all it, uh, my cousins. It's not here. Oh, Mike. The horses are described, Mike, in great and loving detail um, by Minna Burnaby. So I knew that not only did I know about Leicestershire as posh and the Pennines as Pavian, but I had Minna to lead me into the, the thrill and excitement of being a woman and being a rider, a hard rider a fast rider, someone who took eight falls a day and got up again. So the point is, at this point, I was trying to form two chapters. The first one, Land of Liberty, which was about the aristocracy in Leicestershire. The other one was called <coughs> Bonnie Moorhead, which was about uh, the Pennine. And then I remembered that I actually knew a lot more about sport history than I thought I did. Because sometimes when you get into something, you then remember the rest. It comes back to you like an old language. And then I started remembering Hugh McLeveny. When I was a young <coughs> schoolboy, I used to read McLeveny in The Observer, who actually tried to write in an elite highly cultural way about sport. And oh, I didn't always understand him, but I knew he was trying. Norman Mailer, who I did understand, 
I knew that he could punch with words. Then there was Clive James, another favorite of mine, who um, made sport an everyday part of his Australian upbringing. David Story's novel, of course, The Sporting Life, had always haunted me since the movie. I went to a session this morning on rugby league is a thick description of Wakefield, no, St. Helens. Well, The Sporting Life is a thick description of Wakefield in the 50s. Then there was Dick and his wonderful sport in the British, and there was Emma Griffin who showed me, came here, and showed us that sport didn't have to be 19th century. It could even be 18th century or 17th century, maybe even 16th century. And she also was very good at pushing sport beyond a noun. It's also a verb, to disport, to show off. And then there was Ross McKibben, who I always enjoyed for my labor history, my social history. And it suddenly hit me that Ross was serious about sport and seamlessly stitched it into his class histories. Then I came here in 2012, and I was 63. Too late, really. Um, too old to, to learn new tricks, but I was trying and the center showed me how. I then got six weeks at Yale, um, Center for British Art, which gave me the most expensive and elite primary sources you'll ever meet. These were oil paintings high on the walls, and sometimes they would get all the curtains off just so I could sit and look at them. I felt like a fraud. I mean, wouldn't you feel like a fraud just sitting looking at a painting? It doesn't seem like work. I felt I needed some goggles or maybe a white coat. But anyway, they did it every day for me. I saw all more horse pictures than I care to remember. And then against that very elite kind of source, um, St. John's uh, Oxford gave me a, a term um, as a fellow there to widen the net and Oxford, the Bodleian, has this wonderful source called the John Johnson. I don't know if you know it, but John Johnson was university printer when that was a position of high esteem. And he was mad about paper. <coughs> As a printer, he would be. And for years and years and years, he just had a big box. And any old paper he came across, he just popped it in the box. So did everybody else. And before Oxford knew where it was, it had the most amazing source for social history and sport history you could find. They call it ephemera, but ephemeral was the last thing it was. And if the big Paul Mellon's great English sporting paintings took me into high-end sport, the John Johnson took me into that realm of tickets and programs and trinkets and scraps of this, scraps of that. And out of these two widely different sources, I begin to, began to see that sport wasn't just class divided, or gender divided, or racially divided. It also had a great common culture, because the rich were enjoying it in the same terms as the poor, and vice versa. From state rooms to pub walls, from hunt balls to bawdy nights and gold medals to Staffordshire Plate, sport was ubiquitous. 
And boxing came out of that. The boxing chapter, chapter three came out of that. Um, boxing was patronized by the very rich and practiced by the very poor. The next step after that was I knew I had to do something about animals. I had to do something about the great welfare movement. Uh, blood sport, of course, was big. So I started looking at the bull running in Stamford, the last one in England. And um, what started out as a chapter on animal welfare and the efforts of the Royal Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals to suppress it started like that, but it didn't end like that. It ended as a chapter actually on the law and the constitution of the English. And there was a straight fight between the London liberal elite who wanted to suppress bull running in the interests of the animals, the legal system that wanted to suppress bull running in the interests of public order and decency, and most of the people of Stamford who thought the bull running constituted who they were in some historic sense. In other words, like English common law, they believed custom was part of their identity. Custom is law, and law is convention. And convention, in their eyes, was identity. And they fought to the end. They did 10 years resisting the pressure of the RSPCA, whose patron was HM Victoria, the 14th Dragoon Guards, the Metropolitan Police, and LinkedIn Assizes. In the end, the magistrates of Stamford were bound over to keep their own peace. And that was the kind of resistance they had. So what started as something about animals and welfare ended as who decides who we are? Does Stanford decide what Stanford is? Or does the National Society for the Prevention of Cruelty the Animals, plus the army, plus the police, and other forces? That chapter was called um, Custom. <clears throat> Out of the Yale and John Johnson collections, um, I found my way to the Harris Library in Preston through a good friend, Michael Wynne Stanley, who was teaching at the time at Lancaster, where I was external. And he told me there was this wonderful uh, source, the Butterworth Papers, Edwin Butterworth had gone through every single parish in Lancashire between 1832 and 34. He was doing it for Edward Baines, who was the radical editor and MP of Leeds. Butterworth visited every parish and asked them about their customs, their sports, five minutes, oh my God. And um, the result was a, a, a county in a state of, of tribulation and, and, and distress. The parish system was collapsing. And the parish was a kind of freehold. It's where you belonged. And if the parish was being upended by industrialization, so was all the sport and custom associated with it. 
That was the attack from without on the parish. My friend at uh, Leicester Uni, uh, Keith Snell, has this wonderful remark in his work on the parish. He said he's seen many gravestones with of this parish proudly, proudly presented, but he's never seen a gravestone which says of this poor law union proudly presented. So the parish meant a lot. Its breakdown hammered popular and plebeian sport. But there were enemies on the inside too, and they were by and large the primitive Methodists and the Wesleyan Methodists. They too were poor. They too were suffering industrialization, but they loathed the parish and its sporting culture. And finally, I felt, and um, I was getting to the end now, I had professional sport, I had parochial sport, I had customary sport, um, I had um, animal sport. But there was a, another phase, another zone that I didn't have, and that was schooling. And um, I knew that schooling was big. It wasn't just amateur, of course. It, it was bigger than amateur. Um, um, Daphne um, did a great uh, paper yesterday on school exercise. And we're talking about millions of people here, not a few thousand. And I did a lot of work at Uppingham School for the public school movement. Uh, and I did a lot of work at Cheltenham Ladies College for the other side of the public school movement. The key point I learned there was it wasn't the schools that were pushing sport, not at all. They were rather embarrassed by it. It was the girls and the boys who attended these schools. They called it boys' side, girls' side. And they were demanding sporting a sporting world that the school was often reluctant to give. Finally, um, the last chapter is called Moderns. It has to be about football, because I couldn't possibly write about a sport history without writing about football. And for me, I tried to depict football as the great modern game. I read 65 football autobiographies and still remain sane. Um, <laughs> and I also enjoyed sitting in the FA headquarters in Soho then, reading the original minute books that came out with the original laws of football, half of which are just ignored now in the premiership. In the end, um, I think I proved some part of McKibben's great assertion that sport is one of our great civil cultures. At the end of the play, King Lear asks, who is it who can tell me who I am? Who is it who can tell me who I am? And this is a question we rarely ask, and even more rarely get answered. But the whole point of this sporting life was to step back from us, the intellectual class, who think all these questions can only be answered in words, step back from that and answer that question in deeds and actions and syndromes. Raymond Williams said culture was ordinary and in that sense, this sporting life is about ordinary people, ordinary cultures, open to all. As for Dick and his worry about bodies, uh, his discomfort with bodies in history, it's really very simple. For most of our history, most of us couldn't read or write, and bodies were what we had above all else. 
bodies to sing with, bodies to fight with, bodies to sport. And in a sense, this is what this book's about. I remember a lot of my dad's mates on Tyneside in the 50s and 60s, shipyard workers, nearly all of them had fingers missing because of the job. That's the downside of a life based on bodies. The upside, of course, was there was a wonderful generation of wicket keepers who were rivet catchers um, <laughs> from the shipyards. <laughs> so Dick, you don't have to be scared of bodies because you've got one. <laughs> and they are our text. More than this, Ken Loach is not my favorite politician, but he is just about my favorite filmmaker because he makes films about people nobody else makes films about. And my book starts with his words. If you show how the world is, that should be enough. Thank you.